0: Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to discuss a mainstay of Abbasid history, the story of how the most prominent family in the Caliphate was undone. It's a tale with dozens of dramatizations, popularly referred to in Arabic as Nakbatul Baramika. The central dispute of these variations revolves around what precipitated the disgrace of the House of Baramak, and the details presented usually depend on whom the author is trying to blame. No matter what version you follow, though, they all share the same gruesome ending. Episode 53, Downfall of the Baramikam really no surprise that this part of the Abbasid story is so famous, at least relative to the obscurity in which the rest of Arab history languishes. It has all the ingredients of a juicy plot. Power, money, women, jealousy, intrigue, hubris, and punishment. The themes and personalities involved even invite histrionic readings and few narrators have been able to resist filling the many gaps we find in our material with conveniently stirring details which support their take on the puzzling affair. The family's ruin was so shocking and terrible that it came to be known as Nakba in Arabic, an emphatic word reserved only for instances of unmitigated disaster. For the last 70 years, the word has all but exclusively been used in reference to the misfortune which has befallen the Palestinian people, and is today considered shorthand for the tragedy of Palestine. A typical rendition of Nakbat al-Baramika usually opens with the house at the height of its glory, and focuses on how and why al-Rashid came to distrust and eventually destroy them. We'll go through a handful of the most popular explanations, but before that, we'll start by describing the role played by the Baramika in al-Rashid's time. Recounting the many positions held by Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki and two of his sons, Fadl and Jafar, will really underline just how central they were to al-Rashid's administration. Popular retellings of this story skip the rise of the Baramika for good reason. According to them, there's nothing to tell. The family started at the top. As soon as Harun al-Rashid became caliph, his mentor Yahya ibn Khalid al-Barmaki, then about 50 years old, had practically unfettered power. Al-Tabari writes that the year he took the throne, al-Rashid appointed Yahya as his wazir or chief minister, saying, quote, I place you in charge of the flock, whose responsibility I remove from my neck and place unto yours. Rule by your best judgment, appoint and dismiss whomever you please, and may things go your way. He then handed over the caliph's seal to Yahya, enabling him to sign letters in his name. The only other seal was with the governor of Khorasan, but the next year it was withdrawn from him and given to Yahya as well. While his position and the possession of both of those seals gave Yahya a monopoly on administrative power, he didn't really get to choose how to exercise it, It was the caliph's mother, al-Khayzuran, who called the shots in the first three years of al-Rashid's reign. I'm sure she valued Yahya al-Barmaki's opinion greatly, though, and she left it up to him to decide whom to trust to carry out her commands. Yahya made good use of his eldest son, the precocious Fadr, by regularly assigning official tasks to him. His other son, Jafar, also came to play a major part at court as did Yahya's brother Muhammad, who served as al-Rashid's hajib for seven years. Yahya's two youngest sons, Musa and Muhammad, occasionally come up as well, but our story today will largely center around Yahya, Fadl, and Jafar. The caliph's mentor and wazir wielded great power from the get-go, and his two sons helped him out and grew important to al-Rashid in the process. As if to highlight how closely the three worked together, one narration says that when Al-Rashid wanted to reward Ja'far, he wrote to his wazir Yahya and told him to quote, "Move the caliph's seal from your right hand to your left." Yahya had given Fadl, one of the two seals he'd been entrusted with, to help expedite administration. So what Al-Rashid was asking him to do was to take it from Fadl and give it to Ja'far. By referring to the two younger Baramika as Yahya's right and left hands respectively, The Caliph was implicitly signing off on this arrangement and therefore empowering all three Baramika. Within a few years, Fadl was put in charge of Armenia and Jazira, then Tabaristan, Rai, and eventually Khurasan. Likewise, Jafar became responsible for parts of Iraq, then Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and eventually Egypt. The pair did not personally govern all these provinces but they had full control over who got assigned to administer them, and for all intents and purposes, they represented the caliph's interests in these many lands. At their peak, a period which lasted several years, so maybe it's more of a plateau than a peak, the Baramika practically ran the state. Fadl and Jafar were responsible for all appointments in the caliphate's various provinces, Yahya oversaw statewide revenue and spending, and the caliph's Hajib, Yahya's brother Muhammad, controlled access to al-Rashid 24-7. Furthermore, as mentors to the caliph's heirs, the Baramika were poised to extend their hold on the state into the future. It was a near-overwhelming stranglehold on administrative power that is quite difficult to overstate. Let's catalogue their rise chronologically before focusing on all the material we have on their fall. Yahya wielded authority even before al-Rashid returned to the capital to receive the Ummah's pledges in 786, and his brother Muhammad was appointed hajib just two years later in 788. Fadl had already begun helping his father with taxation by then, and was a close associate of the caliphs at court. In 791, Fadl impressed al-Rashid and earned his gratitude by successfully installing his young son al-Amin as his successor. This was a delicate affair because Al-Amin was barely five years old and the caliph's choice was bound to rankle the many Abbasids who had hoped to be named instead. Fadl's responsibilities then continued to grow. The next year he was put in charge of Rai and the rest of the region so he could deal with the Hashemite movement in Daylam and the year after that he became the governor of Khurasan, a point which marked the peak of Fadl's power. His brother Jafar had a similar career trajectory, but he was much closer to al-Rashid, and so he tended to stay with the caliph at his court. Jafar was given control of Iraq, Egypt, and greater Syria at various points during al-Rashid's reign, and in 798 he became mentor to the caliph's second in line for the throne, another son of his named al Mamun. I'm going to leave all talk of al-Rashid's sons, al-Amin and al Mamun for our episode on the topic of his succession next time. That's enough about the Baramika's influence for now. We find plenty more examples of how they exercised their considerable authority and descriptions of their incredible wealth, but I think it's time we get started with their fall from grace. It's a subject we find a mountain of speculation about with very little consensus. The various takes fundamentally disagree about what prompted al-Rashid to turn on his favorite family in 802. What they do agree on is that by the end of that year, the baramika were in the caliph's dungeons, with the exception of Jafar, who had been beheaded. His corpse was subsequently sent back to the capital, carved up into chunks, and the pieces were impaled on the city's main bridges for all to see. To uncover the mystery behind this gruesome reversal, we're going to go through the different versions we have on the subject, take stock of recurrent themes, and ultimately use all that we glean to piece together a sensible explanation. As you'd expect, some narrations are likelier than others, but even the outlandish ones are valuable, and I'm going to start with one of the most far-fetched. Despite being quite implausible, the tale of Al-Rashid's half-sister Abbasah is a remarkably popular take on the ruination of the house of barmak Basically, it goes that Al-Rashid loved drinking with two people above everyone else, his buddy Jafar al-Barmaki and his sister Al-Abbasah bint al-Mahdi. He especially loved it when the three hung out together, but Islamic custom made it awkward because there were these rules about how Ja'far wasn't allowed to look at Abbasa. The Caliph's solution was to marry the two, but he made it clear that he was only doing this so that they could all properly chill together, and he made Ja'far promise never to consummate the marriage. Well, you can probably tell where this is heading. Different renditions play around with how and when Al Rashid caught on, some saying it wasn't until Abbasah and Jafar's second son was several years old, but nevertheless, the caliph seized at the betrayal of his trust. Most versions report that it was his hajib, Fadl ibn Rabia, who informed the caliph about the whole affair after a spy of his found out about it. Al-Rashid had everyone put to death, including his young Baramika nephews, and he personally took out his beloved half-sister. This scandalous account pulls no punches, and its salaciousness explains why it is such a popular simplification of the downfall of the Baramika. Ignoring its many dramatic distractions, we can see that it lays the blame squarely on Jafar, whose lust, disloyalty or ambition, vices cited in the many renditions, led him to betray the Caliph. Another significant aspect highlighted in these accounts is the role played by Fadl ibn Rabia in tattling on the Baramika. Rumors will hear repeated elsewhere. I don't know how much effort I should dedicate to dismissing this subgroup of explanations, but it's clear when you're reading them that their priority is to entertain the audience and not enlighten it. The only valuable lessons for us here are that the Baramika were disgraced suddenly, it was the result of a grave mistake by Jafar, and that their enemies at court helped to bring it about. Another recognized subgroup of explanations rejects these three assertions. In them, the caliph came to feel that he had ceded too much to the baramika, and slowly began to resent them for their wealth and influence. They were neither richer nor more powerful than al-Rashid himself, but as the ones responsible for administering his entire caliphate, they had become the true face of official authority as far as everyone else was concerned. One account says that al-Rashid would occasionally dress up as a beggar so he could roam his capital incognito and personally read the mood of its people. On one trip late in his reign, he marveled at all the beautiful mansions lining the banks of the Tigris. Whenever he asked a passerby who owned this or that palace, the reply would invariably be some barmaki. And the awe with which the family was regarded truly dawned on the caliph when someone informed the ignorant beggar in disguise that all that was good and beautiful in this world belonged to the barmaki. A similar variation says that early in his reign, Abbasid had written to al-Rashid reprimanding him for giving Yahya al-Barmaki too much authority adding that shirking the Caliph's responsibility was a sin and a betrayal of the Ummah. The Baramika had the man imprisoned at Al-Rashid's orders, but many years later the Caliph went to visit him for the first time, and after a long chat he realized that his kin had a point. The Abbasid prisoner explained that he had only intended to remind the Caliph of his duty before God, and an apologetic Al-Rashid released and rewarded the man for having spoken truth to power. In both these variations, we're told the Caliph's attitude towards the Baramika slowly began to shift after he realized just how much power they held. Some accounts say that Al-Rashid's servants picked up on this and they started to give the family the cold shoulder at court, like not announcing their full name or needing to be asked multiple times to get them a glass of water, stuff like that. This behavior snowballed, emboldening the many enemies the Baramika had at court and it eventually led to their downfall. Despite their lack of an explanation for why the Baramika ended up in jail while Jafar wound up dead, accounts like these are still valuable. It makes perfect sense that the caliph would come to resent the Baramika over time. For one thing, the wealth and power he had given them enabled ostentatious displays of wealth. Given that they had wielded enormous authority for over 15 years, it's understandable that the people came to see them in a way which left al-Rashid feeling threatened. The stuff about the caliph dressing up as a beggar or having a change of heart after a long conversation with a man he'd imprisoned may not be true, but it suggests that popular perceptions of the baramika played an important role in their downfall. Their extended time in power also could have had a transformative effect on them and they may have come to feel like they were too big to fail. Sixteen years is a long time. Al-Rashid empowered Yahya when he first came to the throne at the young age of 21, a decision that could have looked quite different to the 37-year-old caliph in 802. I'm just saying that although these accounts lack explanative power, they do present some compelling points that we ought to keep in mind. Besides, These all seem like strains we can reasonably expect for a high-stakes relationship, like the one between Al-Rashid and the Baramika. Now on to our last subgroup of narrations. While not as exciting as the material I've shared thus far, these accounts present us with a more believable explanation of what went wrong for the Baramika. They center around the fate of Yahya ibn Abdullah, the Hashemite who had escaped to Daylam and begun winning over the province's people to his cause. I'll quickly refresh everyone's memory about his short-lived movement. Yahya got to Dalam around the year 790, and in 792 the caliph sent Fadl al-Barmaki to deal with him. Fadl worked out an agreement where Yahya was promised safety if he returned to the caliphate, and the lord of Dalam was paid handsomely to ensure that he accepted This is where the controversy begins. The question of Yahya's fate is contested quite heavily, and it's clear that most narrations are uncomfortable accusing Al-Rashid of wanting to eliminate his Hashemite competition. The narrative is too fragmented for us to go through the many variations, so instead I'll relay a version which stitches together all the stuff that I found to be well-supported across the different accounts. The Hashemites were pleasantly surprised at the treatment they and Yahya received following his safe return, but the honeymoon period did not last very long. He was originally entrusted to Fadl's care, and although the caliph preferred that Yahya stay in the capital so he could be easily surveilled, Yahya longed to return to Medina. Al-Rashid begrudgingly granted his request since freedom of movement was one of the terms of the promise of safety he had made to Yahya. But the caliph then installed harshly anti-Hashemite governors in Mecca and Medina, clearly indicating some dark intentions towards his kin. These governors did as expected of them, and they reported all sorts of treasonous activities to the caliph over the years. But of course, there's no agreement on any of it, or about Yahya's conduct in Medina more generally. After about five years or so in Medina, by the year 800, Yahya was ordered back to Baghdad. We find lots of dubious material about his mistreatment, but the din of controversy is too loud for us to determine what happened and under whose orders. All I can tell you for sure is that the case against Yahya relied entirely on the very questionable claims made by al-Rashid's governors against him. This is where the Baramika come into the picture. While narrations disagree about whether Yahya was in al-Rashid's dungeons or under house arrest with the Baramika, They concur that the caliph put his closest friend, Jafar al-Barmaki, in charge of the vexing Hashemite. Jafar may or may not have had orders to put Yahya to death. I personally believe he did, but most accounts shy away from ascribing such intent to Al-Rashid. It happens differently in the many renditions, but Jafar could not bring himself to kill a descendant of the Prophet, and he chose to release Yahya instead. This sort of religious reasoning is fairly common in our sources. More believable explanations say Jafar's decision had more to do with maintaining the abbasid hashemite relationship, or came from his concern about the Abbasid reputation more generally. Of course, there was nowhere safe for Yahya in the Caliphate, so the plan was for him to secretly make his way to the Byzantine Empire and remain in hiding for the rest of Al-Rashid's reign. Most accounts say that a spy of the caliph's hajib, Fadr ibn Rabia, found out about Yahya's release and told his master, who in turn informed Al-Rashid of Jafar's betrayal. It's always reassuring to find a theme repeated across multiple versions, and I totally support the idea that the many enemies of the Baramika, especially Fadr, played a role in their downfall, but I find a different ending to this tale to be more plausible. A couple narrations say that Yahya made it all the way to the frontier between the two powers and was only caught in the border town of Al-Massisa, where Muhammad al-Barmaki, the caliph's ex-Hajib, was in charge. After hearing about Jafar's role in Yahya's escape, he decided to personally go to the caliph and come clean about the whole thing. The reason I prefer this version is because when the caliph ordered Jafar be executed and all the baramika be sent to jail, He specifically excluded Muhammad and his sons, an exception that isn't addressed in any of our other explanations. I am quite pleased with how neatly my rendition of the story about Yahya and the Baramika turned out. That was the point, after all, to put together a clear and reasonable sequence of events. I only managed this by excluding all the controversial bits of the tale like what Yahya was up to in Medina, the caliph's attitude towards the Hashemites more broadly, and the stuff about Yahya's treatment in al-Rashid's prisons leading up to his eventual execution. I feel like I'm cutting you short by leaving all this material out, so even though it runs the risk of confusing some listeners, I'll say a bit more about the subject. Some narrations say that after returning to Medina, Yahya used the money he had been granted by al-Rashid to feed and shelter other destitute Hashemites, and that practice of charity made him popular with the clan and made the caliph nervous. So even this mild account admits that Yahya maintained some kind of public profile after his return to Medina, and others make even firmer accusations against him. The most extreme go all out and say that he was masterminding a whole da'wah movement against the Abbasids, and there is plenty of other, more intermediate material. So it's not easy to determine whether or not Al-Rashid was justified in ordering Yahya back to the capital. The caliph's attitude towards the Hashemites is contested bitterly in our sources, but the issue seems quite clear to me. Simply coming out and saying that Al-Rashid had no reservations about persecuting the Prophet's descendants sounds really bad and there is remarkably little material critical of this specific caliph. Even when terrible things happened under his watch, he just never catches any flack for it. Given how sanitized his image is in Arab history, the few accounts we find decrying injustice during his reign stand out and are thus especially significant. The Hashemites probably suffered immensely under Al-Rashid's regime, despite the denials we come across in more flattering depictions of the caliph. Dozens of them, perhaps hundreds even, perished in his jails, including the imam of his time, Musa al-Kadhim, son of Jafar al-Sadiq. Musa had been around for a while by now, and the fact that he had survived the reign of all the caliphs since al-Mansur only to die poisoned in al-Rashid's dungeons shows how much more hostile this caliph was to the Prophet's descendants. But like I said earlier, accusing Al-Rashid of condoning this behaviour was considered quite slanderous. I even came across an account which turns this whole story on its head in an effort to absolve the Caliph. It says that the reason Al-Rashid fell out with the Baramika was because they were the ones who were obsessed with killing Hashemites, and that Jafar presented the Caliph with the head of one of the Prophet's descendants as a gift. Al-Rashid was so disgusted that he had Jafar put to death immediately and his family imprisoned. It's a clumsy bit of propaganda that nevertheless acknowledges the downfall of the Baramika had something to do with the Hashemites. I don't think we'll get a lot out of going through more variations of this story. But before wrapping up, I wanted to discuss a few things that we didn't focus on today. While the Baramika had many enemies at court, the only name implicated in their undoing is that of the Caliph's Hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabia. Of all the people who held grudges against them, Fadl was the most effective at turning al-Rashid against his long-time retainers. He seems to have been exceedingly good at his job, always keeping an ear out for what might please the Caliph and going out of his way to obtain it for him. There's even some poetry marveling at Fadl's capacity to withstand Al-Rashid's verbal abuse without ever showing a hint of personal offense. So we're clearly dealing with a professional here. As Hajib, he was always by the Caliph's side, and there's a clear deterioration in the power of the Baramika starting with his appointment, though it's harder to say whether this was a cause or a symptom of the decay in their standing. Fadl ibn Rabia replaced Muhammad al-Barmaki as Hajib in 795. That same year, Yazid al-Shaybani defeated the Kharijite Walid in Jazeera, And the next year, Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan replaced Fadl ibn Yahya al-Barmaki as governor of Khurasan. Although the Baramika continued to wield considerable authority after these developments, they give us the impression that al-Rashid was beginning to intentionally empower and rely upon other commanders in order to balance out their influence. I don't think the caliph would have turned on the baramika if he felt they were indispensable. Something their many enemies must have assured him was far from the truth. There is one more line of reasoning one can follow to understand why al-Rashid may have wanted to rid himself of the baramika. I've decided to leave it out because it has a lot to do with the subject of succession, our topic for next time. Let's instead end with a synopsis of what happened to the Baramika after they went to jail. First off, accounts eager to praise Al-Rashid's sense of justice say that he only detained Yahya and Fadl, but there's good reason to believe he imprisoned every Baramaki he could get his hands on. When he made an exception of his ex-Hajib Muhammad al-Barmaki, the Caliph explicitly said that Muhammad and his children were to be spared strongly implying that everybody else's children were out of luck. We're told Yahya and Fadl were treated well in their first year of captivity. They were held together, and the elderly Yahya was even allowed to have servants to assist him. That changed after the caliph heard a ridiculous rumor that Yahya and Fadl had been plotting to remove Al Rashid and replace him with one of his kin, and both men were tortured to extract confessions which were not forthcoming. We're told that when the caliph personally accused Yahya of the scheme, Yahya simply asked in response why he would ever replace the man he raised with a stranger, a question which Al-Rashid had no response to, and that apparently settled the matter. Yahya perished in prison in 806, and his son Fadr, the caliph's milk brother, died in 808, just five months before Harun himself. Musa al-Barmaki was eventually released by al-Rashid's successor, and we never hear about his family again after that. Reading about the Baramika and their fearful end, I was constantly reminded of that story Abu Ayyub al-Muryani had told in al-Mansur's time, the one about the rooster who is afraid of his masters because he knows what's roasting in their ovens. The family had so much experience administering the state and taking care of al-Rashid's affairs that they must have intimately understood all there was to know about how to keep a caliph happy and yet even they could not escape the rooster's fate. My best guess as to why Ja'far released Yahya and brought about his house's demise is that having been in power for so long and so exceptionally close to al-Rashid at that Ja'far lost sight of the fact that kings have no friends, only servants. Or maybe it's as one of the laziest accounts about their downfall says, that there was nothing wrong with the Baramika, except that they were around for so long that the Caliph grew bored of their presence. How their disgrace came about is one of those unsettled puzzles of Arab history, one that laypeople and historians alike have enjoyed speculating about ever since. Now that we've thrown our own two cents in, we can move on to our final episode on this storied caliph, in which we'll discuss the matter of Al Rashid's succession in detail, another subject in which the Baramika are deeply involved. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.